Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm an elder here. And uh, we're going to continue our series in the Psalms, which uh, I've been loving uh, this summer. So we're going to be in Psalm 62 today. Um, please get your, your eyes on the page or on your phone. Uh, but please turn to Psalm 62. This is page 462 in the Red Bibles, if you're using that. So as you're turning there, um, I just, I love how relevant and universal the Psalms are. I can read Psalms like today's passage and immediately feel God's presence and the power of His truth. Followers of God have poured over the Psalms for centuries and found strength and hope in a God who is sovereign and loving and personal. And today's passage shows us that slowing down and being still before God helps us to develop confidence and trust in God no matter what the circumstances. So we're going to jump right in. Um, in Psalm 62, we're going to see it includes a common literary device used throughout the Psalms called an inclusio. And according to Wikipedia, an inclusio is a, based on a concentric principle, also known as bracketing or an envelope structure, which consists of creating a frame by placing similar material at the beginning and the end of a section. So we're going to see uh, the psalmist here, King David, repeats himself to make a point. So we're going to look at this inclusio together in Psalm 62. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip to 5 and 6. So in verse 1 it says, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Truly He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. And skip down to verse 5 and 6. It says, yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. NIV translates verses 1 and 5 as finding rest in God. And the Hebrew root for finding rest describes a motionless waiting, what we could call a holy inactivity in anticipation of divine action and deliverance. In other words, the psalmist is talking about a stillness of his whole being. And being still is a very difficult challenge in today's fast-paced world. And it can be especially difficult when we're going through great turmoil. But in between the inclusio, we see this is exactly the situation for David. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. So trusting God and finding rest in Him by being still in the midst of turmoil is a common, common theme we're going to see throughout the Bible. But why? What is it about being still that can lead us to a greater trust in God? How can holy inactivity... Help us to develop confidence and trust in God no matter what the circumstances. Well, holy inactivity involves focusing on our dependence on God. You see, David's complete trust in God comes from his dependence on God for everything. Look again at verses 1 and 2. He finds rest in God alone. He finds salvation in God. God alone is his rock and his fortress. Whether it's in relation to his spiritual life or his physical needs, David is completely dependent on God. And that's what makes this inclusio stand out. David juxtaposes his unshakable trust in God with his enemies' attempts to take him down. And this is more than a, a declaration that God is good and his enemies are bad. 
This is David proclaiming that God is completely sufficient for all his needs. That his salvation comes from God alone. That God is his rock. And his circumstances can never change this truth. It's because of who God is that David can find rest and stillness in him, even though he's under attack. We see this call to holy inactivity all throughout the Bible. For example, this is similar to Exodus 14, when Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt. As the Israelites are escaping, they approach the sea and they see Pharaoh's army pursuing them. And they have nowhere to go and they complain to Moses that they never should have left Egypt. They're literally scared for their lives. And what does Moses tell them? He says this. He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you. You will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. Then he says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Hebrew word used for be still here literally means keep still, be silent, let someone do something without objection. Just stop and trust God. And, you know, this sounds very counterintuitive. Imagine being in that situation and fearing for your lives as a ruthless military power is bearing down on you and your family and your leader tells you to be still and do nothing. We don't like being still. We don't like doing nothing. We want answers. We want control. We want to Google our problem and find millions of different answers. But Moses' command to the Israelites was to stop and completely depend on God to rescue them. In Psalm 46, there's a similar message to all the nations of the world that are bent on domination and power. God proclaims that they are to cease and desist from this and instead be still and know that I am God. Be still and silent. This isn't exactly how I would describe most Americans today in our culture. And I think it may be harder than ever to engage in this holy inactivity today. And one of the main, main reasons for this is probably our technology. As you can probably imagine, those of us in the educational world deal a little bit with issues surrounding cell phones in the classroom. My students are self-proclaimed addicts to their phones. And if you've ever been in my classroom, you'll frequently hear me utter something akin to, all right, guys, you can put away your cell phones or leave them at home for the rest of the school year or throw them out the window or smash them on the floor or never bring them to class the rest of your life. And, you know, about three or four of them put them away and the rest of them didn't hear what I said because they're on their phone. <laughs> and, you know, it's just the reality of, of life today. I could go on for hours about the perils of cell phones in modern life. Um, I can't tell you how angry I get when I see drivers looking down at their cell phones. I mean, it seems like half of the drivers today are looking down. It just drives me crazy. You know, and as far as, as social media, I'll just say that I think it does more harm than good. The ability to get instant, unlimited information and to communicate our thoughts in real time to the world is, in my humble opinion, a disaster for mankind. Uh, you know, some people would uh, point to the development of atomic weapons or cloning dinosaurs as existential threats. But to me, these pale in comparison to the dangers of social media. I mean, humans are simply not capable of taking shortcuts when it comes to responsibly understanding complex issues. Just can't happen. So, I mean, how many of you are sick and tired of the nonstop tweets and reaction to tweets and the psychological toll of trying to live up to the perfections that we see on Facebook. It's exhausting. It's ripping the fabric of our society. 
recently heard a report on students at MIT. It found that the number of students at MIT who deal with anxiety and depression has skyrocketed in recent years, and they attribute this to the psychological effects of social media. You see, even students at MIT feel like failures because they can never measure up to the standards of the hundreds of friends that they have on social media. I read uh, an article by a guy named Andrew Sullivan who was um, writing about Western civilization and our, our obsession with busyness. And he said this. He said, we became a civilization of getting things done with the development of America in some ways as its crowning achievement. Silence and modernity became, over the centuries, an anachronism, even a symbol of the useless superstitions we had left behind. The smartphone revolution of the past decade can be seen in some ways simply as the final twist of this ratchet, in which those few remaining readouts of quiet, the tiny cracks of inactivity in our lives, are being methodically filled with more stimulus and noise. He goes on to say that the Sabbath was a collective imposition of relative silence, a moment of calm to reflect on our lives in the light of eternity. It helped define much of Western public life once a week for centuries, only to dissipate with scarcely a passing regret. Into the commercial cacophony of the past couple of decades, it reflected a now-battered belief that a sustained spiritual life is simply unfeasible for most mortals without these refuges from the noise and work to buffer us and remind us who we really are. But just as modern street lighting has slowly blotted the stars from the visible skies, so too have cars and planes and factories and flickering digital screens combined to rob us of a silence that was previously regarded as integral to the health of the human imagination. So what we have here is a double-edged sword. The constant need we feel to look at social media or entertainment or any other kind of media distracts us from engaging in holy inactivity and the more we feed ourselves with this content, the more we need holy inactivity to slow us down and refocus on our dependence on God alone. And if we in the church don't recognize these dangers, we simply will not be capable of following God's command to stop and be still and be silent before a holy God that demands our full attention. And I think in addition to our technological distractions, another reason it's difficult for many of us to stop and be silent before God is we have pretty comfortable lives. The American middle class life means for most people that we don't have to worry about basic necessities of life like shelter and clothes and food. It's often easy for us to coast through life and get wrapped up in our schedules, revolving around work and our kids, our mortgage, car payments and vacations. It's not that we don't have time to stop and be still before God, it's just easy to avoid it. And this makes me wonder about King David. Uh, we don't know the exact circumstances surrounding the events in Psalm 62, but his kingship and his life seem to be at risk from his enemies. And yet David experiences the stillness of his whole being in the midst of this turmoil. But what about when things were going really well for David? You know, you go back and, and after he had overcome Saul's attacks, and he consolidated his power. David became the greatest of all the kings of Israel. He conquered Jerusalem, and God gave him victory wherever he went. He reigned over all of Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. And this is where I wonder if David was, was finding rest in God alone. Was his soul still before God at this point, like it was in Psalm 62? 
Was God his fortress and his rock and his salvation? I don't know if we can answer that. But it was at this point in David's life that he committed adultery with Bathsheba and soon after killed her husband. You see, even for David, a man after God's own heart, it seems that it was much harder for him to rest in God when things were going well. It's when he was under attack and things were falling apart and he gets tired and weary that he recognizes his need to be still and remember his dependence on God. It's, it's simply normal and frankly accepted in our modern comfortable lives to not depend on God. Most Americans depend on their wealth and their careers and their status and their health for their security. Most people try to make these their rock and their fortress and their salvation. But Psalm 62 warns us of these dangers. Look at uh, verses 9 and 10. It says, Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing together, they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Trusting in wealth and power is not a recent phenomenon of modernity or the West. Our sin natures pull us towards these false gods. And so it's often when we're under attack when we are more likely to see that we are depending on things other than God. And this presents us with an opportunity to rid ourselves of these idols that have supplanted God in our lives. Also presents us with opportunities to hear God better. Holy inactivity involves hearing God better. Look at verse 11 and 12. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. And this is the opposite of how it works for my students and my kids. Speak five things and they hear none of it. But God hears, or David hears one thing God has spoken, two things he has heard. Power belongs to God, to you, God. And with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to to what they have done. But as David has found rest and stillness in God, he can hear what God is telling him. And God is reminding him of two of his greatest and unchangeable qualities, his sovereignty and his love. See, David understands God's great salvation plan, that God will vindicate his people who right all the wrongs of the world, that he has the power to accomplish this, and he tr truly desires it because of his great love for his creation. Verse 12, David speaks of God's unfailing love. And here's that Hebrew word again that Dave and Mike Wagner discussed a couple weeks ago. The translation in English of God's unfailing love comes from the Hebrew term hesed. And as we heard before, this term denotes God's persistent and unconditional tenderness, his kindness and mercy, a relationship in which he seeks after man with love and mercy. Hesed expresses both God's loyalty to his covenant and his love for his people along with the faithfulness to keep his promises. David lived a thousand years before Jesus. But like other Old Testament prophets, he gazed upon the gospel of Jesus well before Jesus was born a baby in Bethlehem. And as we've seen, David is just like us. He's a sinner. Yet he knows that his salvation was in God because of God's Hesed love that God was going to restore his fortunes. And he was going to do for him what he could not do for himself. When we're still before God, we can hear God reminding us of this great gospel message. 
The good news that Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God by dying in our place and rising from the dead and wiping away our sins. God wants to speak this message to us every day. And I know this because he speaks it all throughout the Bible. From Genesis to to Revelation, we see a sovereign God who is slow to anger, abounding in love for his creation, a God who will stop at nothing to save us. You know, for teachers like me and and my wife, Jess, summer is by far the best time of the year. Uh, You know, being home is awesome. It allows us much more time with with our kids. And uh, this also means a lot more opportunities to discipline our kids. And uh, not long ago, our oldest daughter, Carmen, um, had a rough day. And uh, it was during that really hot spell. And so we were stuck inside. And and she spent a good part of the day testing our patience and and getting in trouble and pushing the boundaries. And uh, like kids do, right? And and the last straw was when uh, she was sent to her room. And she didn't make her way up the stairs, but instead sat on the stairs complaining. And so that was the last straw. I grabbed her arm. I pulled her into her room, gave her a very impassioned scolding. And I I just asked her, I said, why are you being so disobedient all day? And I'm expecting an argument. I'm expecting her to to come back at me with all these excuses. And to my surprise, she broke down, sobbing. And she said, I don't know why I'm such a bad person. And uh, it kind of caught me off guard, but I, we had a long talk, and I asked her, uh, I said, you know, have you really put your trust in Jesus? And, and she, she knew, um, I asked her, do you know that you have a new heart from Jesus? And she said she didn't know, and, and she wanted to put her faith in Jesus. And so um, we prayed together, and, uh, you know, it was, it was awesome, obviously. And afterwards, we talked about, all right, what does this mean to have a relationship with God? And we talked about, like any relationship, you, you need to talk and you need to listen. And, you know, holy inactivity is one of the best ways we can do this. In his stillness before God, David hears God reminding him of his Hesed love for him. But he also feels the freedom to pour out his heart to God. Look at verse 8. David tells all the Israelites to trust God at all times and to pour out their hearts to him. Holy inactivity is necessary to develop what Thomas Kempis called a familiar friendship with Jesus. This friendship involves hearing God tell us every day that his love for us knows no bounds, that he is good and just. It involves us being able to pour out our hearts to him, that even though our world is fallen and we're often under attack, we can stop and be still before a God who knows better than we ever can the reality of evil. We can have confidence in God because He overcame all evil and all sin and all the pain and suffering of his creation. So how do we cultivate a lifestyle modeled on holy inactivity? Well, holy inactivity involves practicing the presence of God. So we need to build times and places in our life for silent meditation with God. We need to unplug from our technological distractions and refocus on our dependence on God alone. But this shouldn't just be like a five-minute exercise, uh, five-minute daily exercise. This shouldn't just only happen when we're under attack. If God really is our refuge, we should try to commune with God and practice his presence at all times. Practicing the presence of God as a, as a spiritual discipline has been u- utilized by Christians throughout the centuries. 
And it simply means that you intentionally try to think of God's presence every moment of the day. In 1937, on the first day of the year, a man named Frank Laubach wrote this in his diary. He said, God, I want to give you every minute of this year. I shall try to keep you in mind every moment of my waking hours. I shall try to let you be the speaker and direct every word. I shall try to let you direct my acts. I shall try to learn your language. It's quite a New Year's resolution. Brother Lawrence was a 17th century kitchen monk who also practiced the presence of God. He wrote this. He said, the time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several, several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed sacrament. Here we see holy inactivity occurring within the midst of our daily activities. We can have a stillness of our being before God as we consciously dwell in his presence while we go throughout the day. And practicing God's presence is not going to happen automatically. It takes discipline. Uh, but if you attempt it, don't get discouraged if you struggle to remember. I've read a couple of books on this, and more often than not, I'm not practicing the presence of God. But simple little prayers throughout the day or sticky notes on your desk can serve as reminders and be a great place to start. As we close, it's important to remember that the more we depend on God and listen to him, and practice his presence, the more we focus on things he cares about. Holy inactivity should not be mistaken for just an individual spiritual exercise centered on your personal relationship with God that excludes the work of the kingdom. Rather, as we slow down and we learn to depend on God more and hear God more clearly, his Hesed love compels us to love him and others. One pastor puts it like this. He says, when we submit to God in the present moment, his life flows in us and through us. This life frees us from the automatic programming of our flesh mindset and the pattern of this world and leads us into conformity with Jesus Christ. God's love compels us to do the things Jesus did and live out the things Jesus taught. And he says this, it's impossible to remain surrendered to God moment by moment and remain apathetic about things God is passionate about. As his life is poured into us, it can't help but begin to be expressed through us. Let's pray. Lord, as, as we come before you and try to be still, we recognize, Lord, that you are far greater than we could ever imagine that you are present with us all the time. That you are reminding us constantly of your Hesed love. That you sacrificed for us to bring us to you so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have a new heart and we could be your agents your kingdom. I pray that you would help us to practice your presence throughout our lives. Help us to unplug from the busyness. Help us to be still and silent before you. 
to allow you to pour into our lives so that your love can pour out of us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.